And our scripture reading this morning will come from Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith, This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Trinity Fellowship. I thank you for their heritage. I thank you for their endurance. I thank you for the opportunity um, to gather again with them, pray for Brad um, during his time of rest, that you would strengthen him, that you would encourage him and his family, that you would um, give them rest, give them grace, um, so that they come back and continue to serve uh, the wonderful people here. Uh, May you be blessed. by the preaching of the word today, may you be glorified, may you be worshipped, and may Christ be proclaimed. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, as Heath mentioned, I am from the great metropolis, West Memphis. Um, went to West Memphis High School, came here um, in 2005, actually came to Conway um, in 2005, and went to uh, CBC for undergrad. And um, get this started here. All right. I went to CBC for undergrad and got a Bachelor of Arts in Biblical Studies from Central Baptist College. Uh, met my wife while I was in college, and there wasn't a whole lot back home, as Heath can tell you. So we we stayed up here. Um, plus, she's prettier and smarter than I am, so it was a good reason to stay. Um, so um, from there, as kind of my my college experience got more and more. Um, convinced of Reformed theology, and eventually um, could no longer be Baptist, and so here here we are. I'm definitely excited to be here. I'm an intern with Christ Church Conway. I'm about six classes away from my master's in theology, so pray for endurance and time and and space to be able to finish that. Uh, We opened up as a foster home this past year, so pray for us, please. Seriously, it's a bunch of teenagers, so kindly send your your grocery money. Um, So... That said, I'm excited to be here with you today, excited to open up Romans. Um, Words matter. They they have a profound effect. It matters about the words that you use. It it matters how you use them, and and it matters that you don't often substitute those words and lose meaning. But words matter. You get... In the negative, you get a phone call in the middle of the night that a friend has passed away. Or you get that diagnosis from a doctor, and it hits you. 
It has an effect on you. It hits you in your gut. Or in the positive, will you marry me? Congratulations, you have a beautiful baby girl. You're adopted. Words matter. They have an effect. They cause feeling. They impact you. And the right words matter. I was a junior in high school um, in the youth group when the first time I really really feel like I dealt with the passage that we're going to dig into today. I was in a Sunday night school in the youth group and gone through a DVD series by John Piper called The Blazing Center. Anybody familiar with The Blazing Center? Okay. And it was there that I first dealt with the reality of this passage, and it it hit me. I'd heard the gospel before, but digging into what Paul is saying in this particular section rocked me. It blew me away. Believers, when's the last time the gospel rocked you? When's the last time that the gospel had such an effect on you through a hymn that you heard, or a song on the radio, or something you read in a book, or a scripture reading, or your devotional time, or a sermon? When's the last time that the gospel blew you away? Words matter. They matter so much that we have an entire heritage of men and women who have given their lives either literally going to death over this passage and the reality of what's in this passage, or they looked at the popular cultural bent of their faith in that day and said, no, I don't think so, and I can give you a myriad of reasons why, and then they used technology of the day, whether it was the printing press or whether it was mass media or whatever, to get this message out because they felt the world had to hear it. Words matter. So much so that Martin Luther, of the passage that we're going to dig into today, said that this passage was the center of the entire Bible. That the rest of Scripture rest and found, finds its foundation on this reality. So words matter. Let's read it again. We're going to start in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So let's start with this, but now. But now, it's a 
hard transition, and it's carrying the weight of what he has just said in 19, that now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable. So Paul's telling you a couple of things as he's bringing this argument that he's been building since chapter 1 almost to a triumphant crescendo. He says that the law speaks to everyone who is under it. So then the the implied question is, okay, Paul, so who's under the law? Well, we know from chapter 2 and chapter 3 it's everyone. We know that because either he's talking to the Jews who have the law and the prophets and the traditions and the commandments and and the ordinances and the processes and everything you've been studying in Exodus, they have the law. Moses gave it to him. It came down from the mountains. It's from God. They're under the law. Okay? So what about the Gentiles? Because the world either, in, in Paul's day, lands either in a, in a Jewish world or in a Gentile world. In, in our day, we could say like this, either those that have grown up in the church or those that this is your first time here. So what do you do with those that didn't have the traditions, that didn't have the oracles of God, and didn't, didn't have all that we see in the Old Testament. Well, we, we saw in chapter 2 if you, in Romans that the law is written on their hearts. That there is an a intrinsic design by the one that has made them that lends them to know that there is a God, right? For what can be known about God is made plain to them ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not acknowledge Him as God, but they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for things resembling birds and animals and creeping things and and themselves, right? That regardless of whether you grew up under the law or intrinsically you know that there's a God, and if there's a God, I'm accountable to Him, whether I acknowledge that or not, that the law is written on your heart. And if you intrinsically kind of figure that out and find your way towards some sense of morality, you become a law unto yourself, right? That's, that's chapter 2. So either way, everyone is under the law. Uh-oh. That has some implications. Why? Because it says, so that every mouth may be stopped. So the law puts us all underneath it. It shuts us up, and it makes us accountable to God. And if we're hoping that, okay, so all i got to do is keep this law, verse 20 kind of puts you in a bind. Verse 20, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We have the law, and the law tells us about ourselves. The law tells us we're in trouble because the law doesn't give you knowledge of salvation. The law gives you knowledge of your sin. Because whether it's one law, don't eat from the fruit of that tree, or it's 600 laws, wash this way, sacrifice this way, interact this way, only marry these people, only work on these days, right? We're in trouble because we cannot seem to get it together. Whether it's one or a million, we're in trouble. 
But the problem isn't with the law, right? What did David say? Your law is perfect. Your law is pure. It's like honey to my lips. I meditate, it, meditate on it day and night. I need your precepts. Your, your law is lovely. It's gorgeous. The law comes from the mouth of God, so that makes it holy and pure and just. The issue isn't with the law. The issue is with us. We're the problem. We're the issue. And the law tells you that. But now. Do you feel the weight of that? But now. Now, the righteousness of God has been manifest, manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Okay, so Paul, what are you saying? That this righteousness of God, this perfect standard has been revealed, has been shown, has been made clear, has been pictured to us, manifested apart from the law, okay? Since the law tells us the truth about ourselves, it reveals a huge reality, and that reality is we need a Savior. The reality is we can't white-knuckle our, our way to salvation. We can't be, you know, like the old SNL skit, we can't be good enough and smart enough and gosh darn it, people like us. Like it's not going to happen. It doesn't matter how good we are. I sat at a lunch with a friend of mine named Muhammad, and he works for us, and I was training him, and we were getting ready to go talk to a client. I work for a digital marketing company. So I'm training him and kind of walking through his presentation. We're sitting at lunch over fajitas, and he asked me how vacation was, and I told him. I told him about a book I read, and he said, oh, great. That, that's awesome. Um, I said, yeah, I'm working on... Kevin kind of put me in charge of building community at the church and trying to figure that out. And he said, yeah, we're trying to build community at our place too. And I said, oh, yeah? How does that, that work? And we got to talking, and, and then um, we got to talking further, and he mentioned that they met, met on Friday. I said, okay, so why do you meet on Friday? He's Islamic. And he said, well, that's kind of a funny question. I said, well, let me help you. We meet on Sunday because Jesus raised from the dead, and it, and it changed everything, including our calendar. Like, it changed everything. And he said, well, the Jews meet on Saturday, y'all meet on Sunday, so we pick Friday. That's kind of how that, how that works. <laughs> and I said, okay. He goes, on top of that, we don't believe in the resurrection. And I said, okay, so we got an empty tomb. What are we doing with it? And he got to talking, he got to explaining that, well, there's a, there's a soul switch that we believe Jesus was a prophet, but he didn't die. That they, the God sent another soul in his place to die on his behalf. And I said, there's a problem with that. You can't die for me, bud. You're a sinner and I'm a sinner. We're, we're in trouble. We have to have someone without sin die for us. He goes, well, I mean, we don't think you have to die for sin. I said, okay, so you at least believe in sin. What do you do with it? And he said, well... We hope the scale is balanced. We're hoping that we do enough good for it to work. And without thinking, which I often do, anybody ever been here where you in open mouth, insert foot? I said, without thinking, oh, so it's a crapshoot. 
And I went, I didn't mean that as blunt as it came out, but Muhammad, buddy, you're hoping for the best? Because I'll be honest with you, if that's where we're at, I'm in trouble. Because the law brings knowledge of sin. The law only tells you, hey, guess what? You can't. Because you're, you're going to continue to try, continue to try, continue to try, and then when you fail, the weight and the guilt and the shame that you're going to feel because you can't seem to get it together will be so much that you'll just say, I, I give up. Right? So the law had to be manifested, or that the righteousness of God had to be manifested, had to be shown to us apart from the law. Because left to ourselves, we cannot get it together. We needed a Savior. But notice what Paul says. He says, it's been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets witness to it. Okay? Paul, how does that work? Paul wants you to see that this, this glorious news he is unpacking for you here to the letter to the church at Rome isn't something brand new. It isn't as if the God of the Old Testament needed a little Zoloff to calm down and all of a sudden we got Jesus in the New Testament, right? It's not as if he was angry in the Old Testament and he's happy in the New Testament. No, Paul wants you to see that from Genesis to Malachi, from Moses to Isaiah, that the history of redemption from the beginning in the garden, the proto-evangelion, the first gospel being given to us by God, all the way to Malachi promising that one is going to come with healing in his wings, that the entire story has been leading to this, that the history of redemption proclaims this announcement of salvation, that the law, as he tells the Galatians, was instituted to lead you to Christ. Let's look at some examples. I mentioned the first gospel, Genesis 3.15. They had one law, not the 600 that they had by the time of Christ, or even the 10 that they're given uh, in Exodus, or the myriad of ordinances and the rest of Leviticus and Deuteronomy about the 10 that they were given, right? They're given one, and they fail. And so he says... From the womb of this woman is going to come one that is going to crush this serpent. I got you. And then in Exodus, we see time and time again from the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the great scapegoat that the sin of the people is put on and he's sent out into the wilderness or the myriad of sacrificial systems or the intricacies of the tabernacle where everything is picturing that there is one that is coming. Or the way the writer of Hebrews talks about this Levitical law, that it felt like day after day after day they are giving the sacrificial system and it felt as if it was never going to end because it wasn't meant to last forever. It was a shadow of the one to come. That Moses tells you even as great as he is, and he brings you the law, that there's one that's coming that's going to be a better prophet than he is. 
that he is going to speak on behalf of God. And Malachi, the very last thing he says is there's one that's coming to announce it with the spirit of Elijah. And then after that, there's one that's coming. He's got healing in his wings. The entire story was leading you to this moment. All of this pointing to this great truth, verse 22, the last part, that the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is what the great reformer Martin Luther called the great exchange. That we sinners, accountable to God for our sin, standing before him under his wrath, have a problem. And the great Savior, who's able to fulfill the law in his perfect obedience, he's able to not take on sin nature in coming and taking on flesh. Comes, lives the life that we couldn't live, and then dies the death that we deserved. Our sin for his perfect status, the great exchange. Paul tells us from the very beginning that he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why? Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed to us from faith, from the point that we understand it, for faith, so that the righteous can live by faith that this great exchange has taken place, that apart from the law, the righteousness of God is possible, that we, we do have a chance to have a relationship with this God. We do have a hope from this wrath that we justly deserve, and it's because that wrath has been put on the second person of the Trinity. The gospel never gets old. Do you understand that? The righteousness of God, the great exchange, the, our confession says it like this. This is what he calls justification. Justification is an act of God's free grace where he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. It's grace. It's not something he was obligated to do. It's something he chose to do because he loved you and because he simply wanted to. And in doing so, it's imputed to us. That's a word that matters. It means that we, it is placed on our behalf so that those who put their confidence not in my ability to get it together, not in my ability to work really hard so that God can love me or be really good or not watch R-rated movies, or li only listen to K-Love, or whatever it is that you want to put on yourself. Not any of those things, but simply to the cross I cling, like we sang. That your only hope, and your only confidence, and the only thing I'm banking on is Jesus. And if you do that, when God looks at you, he doesn't see a sinner. He sees Jesus. Despite your failures, despite your continued failures, despite your future failures, despite 
how you may not get it together as a husband, despite how you sometimes blow it as a dad, despite how sometimes you just don't have it as a, as a worker, despite how sometimes you don't have it as a pastor. He loves you anyway. He adopted you anyway. Your sin for his righteousness, the great exchange, for all who believe. So there, there is a condition to this justification. You can't have one foot in, one foot out. You can't. That's, that was the, the issue with the Galatians, right? They, they started out in Christ, and then they thought, well, I need Christ, plus I need my laws, right? We don't know anything like that as church people, right? We don't, we don't cloud our works as we're pursuing holiness, right? That I, lo- I know Jesus loves me, but I need to make sure and do these things every day. I need to make sure I'm not like this person. I need to make sure I vote this way. We don't know anything like that at all, right? The condition is you can't come thinking I need Jesus plus something else. The condition to this justification is you understand that you rest in Christ alone. Justification is a declaration of our being made right on account of Jesus, that Christ's finished work is credited to our account as he is the only sufficient sacrifice. So who needs this justification? Simply put, all of us. After answering the question of who is justified, Paul now levels the playing field again. If you didn't already feel like you were all in the same boat between the law putting you under itself, Paul drives the point home again because he says there's no distinction. Paul's been building this case the entire time. There's no distinction that the gospel is the power of salvation for who? For everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, the Jews who have the oracles of God, the traditions, the sacrifices, the promises, the stories, the prophets, the laws, the covenants. The Gentiles who are seeing that they can see God in creation and are held accountable because they become a law unto themselves, there's no distinction. We all need to be justified because we're all guilty. But notice Paul's been telling you this the entire time, uses the words revealed again and again and again. So who needs to be justified? All of us. And who needs this righteousness? Notice what he says. For there's no distinction. Why? Verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Again, he's been laying out this weight in Romans up to this point, and he just got done laying out the truth about ourselves beginning of chapter 3, that there's none righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. Their throats are an open grave. The venom of asps are on their lips. That they're swift to do corruption. 
we don't get it. We don't seek God. We're not good people. We don't fear God. And without an outside source left to ourselves, we'd be hopeless. But unless someone saves us from ourselves, we will continue to seek our hope, our identity, and our security in any and everything you'll give me. And I won't understand why it doesn't work. We'll move from job to job. We'll move from relationship to relationship. We'll move, we'll move from thing to thing, unable to understand why it's not working. And we'll think, well, that didn't work. I'll try something else. Seriously not understanding why it's broken. God, through Jeremiah, said it like this, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have dug for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. So a cup with a hole in the bottom of it, not understanding why every time I take a drink, there's nothing in it. Then unless we get a Savior, that's where we are. But now. Now Paul goes on to explain to you just how you receive this righteousness and just how you are justified. And he says, For all have sinned, verse 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. By grace. Not law, not work, not earning, not proving. By grace. And it's a gift. And it's a gift through redemption. That's another one of those words that matters. Redemption. The first century idea was that if you owed money to someone, you didn't just get a credit card and pay it off. You'd have to go to work. And oftentimes, the debt seemed to never actually be satisfied. And someone in your family would realize, okay, my cousin is enslaved now, working to pay off this debt. And they would buy you back. So that, that debt was paid for. Hosea does the same thing with Gomer in the Old Testament, that she continuously chases after lover, after lover, after lover, to the point that he continuously has to buy her back again and again and again and bring her back. That all pictures this great word redemption that Christ, by his blood, purchases you once and for all. It's a gift. So not, not your law, because you can't get it together. His perfect obedience. Not your work, his work. Not your earning, his work. Not your providing, his provision. All in Christ. Paul tells us exactly how God did it. And here's the cool part. Here's the crescendo of the whole story. Here is the part that I hope if you maybe zoned out for a minute, started thinking about lunch, I may have gotten you back in for just a second. Here is the big part of the story that I hope rocks you. 
this grace, this story changes everything. Notice what it says. Verse 25. Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Gage, you spent an enormous amount of time telling me how much I'm a sinner, and I get it. We're reformed for a reason. Total depravity. Check. Right? So how is it possible for a just God to look at a guilty sinner and say, you're innocent and not be a corrupt judge. But here, in his magnificence, the way that God is able to use the angels to touch the lips of Isaiah and say, your sin is atoned for before the cross of Christ is that in his divine forbearance, from the very beginning, the plan was the cross. He knew where the story was going. So he could look at Isaiah and he could say, I touch your lips, your sins are forgiven. Or he could look at David when Nathan comes to him after he had slept with Bathsheba and he says, let me tell you a story. There once was a man with a sheep. Had one sheep. That's all he could afford. And there was a man with a myriad of sheep. And the man with a myriad of sheep Went, to, went in the middle of the night, took the man's one sheep, stole it, cooked it, threw a party, had a feast with his friends. And David, being the king, right? He's justly and he's righteous. He's getting angry and he says, we have to go get this man. This man needs to be punished. And Nathan looks at him and says, you're the man. And from the mouth of David comes repentance. And from... God, through Nathan, comes, your sins are forgiven. How is that possible? Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. This was to show God's righteousness, because at the present time, he had passed over former sins, so that, so that, one day, he could put his wrath on his son for you and for me so that he could equally be just because the full wrath of God is being poured out on sin. And the justifier, the one that can look at you and say, you're free. That's the gospel. And it never gets old. So what do we do with it? Unbeliever, if you're just here, maybe you got drug here, maybe you decided to try something because you're chasing one thing after another, my hope for you is that you would understand that the only rest you will ever feel from the thing you're chasing is by putting your ultimate faith in the one that can save you. Believer, When's the last time the gospel rocked you? That's why we have to hear it every week. 
because we're hard-headed, and we forget, and we'll sing our, our songs, and we'll hear the sermon, and we'll be impacted, and then Monday, we're going to try to do it on our own again. That's why we've got to come back here, because by Saturday, we've been trying to do it on our own all week long and failed miserably, and we need to hear it again. Believer, hear the gospel and let it rock you. It changes, it changes everything for you. It changes the way you live because you understand who you are in Christ. It changes the way you interact at work. It changes the way you interact with your neighbors. It changes the way you love your kids. It changes the way you care for the church. It changes the way you serve in the church. That you, though deserving of wrath, are justified by faith through grace. God set forth a plan to save us from ourselves and did it without making himself corrupt and by making himself the one who justifies. Because of Christ, sin has been paid, God's wrath is satisfied, and the one who has faith is free, declared to possess the right, clear, and pure status of the perfect Son of God. That makes him worthy of praise. So let's do that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Trinity Fellowship. I thank you for your word. Please help us to live by faith because of the reality of these words. If there is someone here that doesn't know Christ, please empower them with your spirit. Open their eyes and do the thing that I can't do and rescue them from themselves. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.